0: Our story begins 25 years ago in a distant land filled with magic, anthropomorphic beavers, conflicted dragons, and all sorts of other fantastical creatures. Every intelligent creature in the world heard The Voice, a psychic broadcast that promised unlimited wealth and power to whoever could break the Seven Seals. The Voice sparked a brief golden age of adventuring, With people of every cut of cloth traveling around the world trying to find out exactly what these seven seals were. Then war broke out between the dominant nation, the Red Kingdom, and the Unjanath, a secretive, isolationist culture of elves who lived in a forgotten, far off corner of the world. That war waged on for nearly 20 years, with no one understanding how it started, until finally a peace treaty brokered by Princess Ravella Red, brought an end to the hostilities. The princess disappeared shortly thereafter, and then the Unjanath retreated from their home, that remote corner of the world known as the Outlands. That brings us to today, where the Outlands Exploratory Company seeks to catalog the Outlands and uncover its secrets, discover its true nature, battle the powerful foes that live there, and simply try to stay alive week from week. Welcome back to the Outlands, everyone. Uh, this is Tales from the Outlands, a, uh, unique podcast about Dungeons & Dragons, specifically one Dungeons & Dragons campaign featuring 18 people. I am your host, Christian Hoffer. I am also the dungeon master of this campaign, and uh, I am joined, as always, uh, by our producer, Luke Herr. Good evening. Uh, This week, as our guest, we have someone uh, who has never appeared on the show as a guest before, and that is Luke Herr. Hello. Good evening. (laughs) Uh, So for those of you, if this is your first episode uh, listening to the campaign, uh, like I said, or listening to the podcast, uh, this is a unique Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Usually most Dungeons & Dragons podcasts fall into one of two categories. The first is your Let's Play podcast. Uh, campaigns uh you know where people sit around and they record themselves playing dungeons and dragons we are not that type of campaign or not that type of podcast i keep calling the podcast a campaign whoo this is going to be a good episode tonight guys um the other type of podcast that you uh D podcast uh that you typically find on the internet are um Podcasts about Dungeons and Dragons, talking about game mechanics and news and things of that nature. We're not quite that either. This is more of a uh, podcast about our campaign, in which we talk about uh, these sessions, uh, talk about the deep lore that is involved, uh, discuss player choices, uh, you know, everything concerning this one specific campaign. Uh, Think of it as you're sitting around the table listening to some of your friends talking about their D&D game. Our campaign is rather unique. We play three nights a week. It features 18 players. Uh, The groups are divided into groups of three. Uh, At this point, uh, they all kind of run kind of parallel to each other. There's not too terribly much crossover. But all the campaigns um, do... um, very much intersect and weave in and out of each other. The storylines are, it's one big storyline just involving three different groups that approach problems differently, you know, get into different kinds of trouble, and, um, you know, try to survive in this wild place known as the Outlands. Uh, so before we get started, uh, if you want to um, help the show out, the best way of doing so is by either following us on Twitter uh we can be found at Outlands Pod. Uh or you can subscribe to us on whatever platform you like to listen to your podcasts on, whether that's iTunes or Spotify or iHeartRadio or any of the other mini podcatching services that are out there. Uh there's really too many to list off. Um So yeah. So um this this show uh, we it's divided into three parts. Uh, the first is our recaps. Uh, this week we're talking about a very uh, a few big milestone events in the Outlands campaign. We have our um, latest event, uh, which is a basically a week long D and D session. Um, we had our one hundredth session of the Outlands, which uh, featured some big returns and some uh, not a uh, not a small amount of drama. Um, and, um, yeah. So we talk about the, re- uh, we talk about our recent sessions first. Then we follow that up with a deep dive into a particular bit of lore. Uh, this week we will be talking about Luke's first character, Core, who the emphasis on that is first character. Uh, Core has not been a player character in, um, going on six months now. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, if we have time, we will do a deep dive about, uh, Luke's main character, uh, Cleaver. Um, and if not, it's okay because Luke is here every single episode. So (laughs) we, we will definitely talk about Cleaver. Well, Cleaver gets talked about probably more than any other character in our campaign, to be honest. Um, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing. (laughs) <laughs> um, but uh yes if we have time we will talk about cleaver one of the more interesting characters in our campaign and then we will wrap up the show uh so um yeah i guess let's get started
1: yeah uh, uh so do you want me to go over what's been happening recently in the outlands
0: yeah that'd be lovely luke
1: yes previously in the outlands the clockwork army which is a army of clockwork constructs led a attack a few months ago on the outpost that killed the majority of npcs in the base a few of the important residents as well all while the party was away and distracted and in this they also stole the seals uh that we had collected at the time and it was generally just a awful moment meanwhile cleaver and malkador two of our Player characters were lost in the Shadowfell after getting sucked into the Void Pool while trying to find ways to deal with Velas of the Void. And the adventurer Bram joined up with the Outlands in search of his wayward apprentice Onakin, who abandoned the order that they were in, the Order of the Unseen Eye, after stealing an unknown artifact. And he has appeared a few other times, notably stealing artifacts from the vampire, Kartram.
0: Yes. Uh, and uh, he is, his motivations are largely unknown. Is he friend or is he foe? Is he both? Also a possibility. That that happens a lot in the Outlands. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, the major thing that we will be talking about tonight in terms of our recap is uh, the attack on the Clockwork Nautilus. Now, this is the third event of our Outlands campaign. Uh, events are kind of these multi-night D&D sessions, which ideally feature all 18 adventurers. Um, how this works is each each one is set up a little bit different, but um, can if you've ever played a uh, D&D epic at a gaming convention, kind of similar to that. So in this case, um, each of our three groups, uh, known as the Terror Team, the Buddy Brigade, and the Toon Squad each of them had their own objective and success conditions. There were a little bit of crossover in between the three groups in which things that one group did could benefit the next group. But in this particular event, everyone basically kind of had their standalone thing. Uh, With these events, since, um, you know, they're they're usually very combat-focused, and so in order to keep things moving... Uh, we often have some sort of uh, either some time component of some kind. Um, In this one, we had a two hour real world timer. So the players had two hours to breach this large Nautilus, this basically a submarine that was the base of the clockwork army and um, complete their objective on it. And then, um, you know, yeah, that was basically it. If, anyone was either dying or dead when the 2 hour timer was over their character would die um basically how this was explained in game was that the uh the pirate captain fortune captain eliza fortune she is a um a recurring npc former antagonist turned ally of the outlands exploratory company um she has made some deals with some very shady magical entities in exchange for getting her um, a lot of uh, magical power and she used this basically by um, giving everybody like teleport badges now the key is those teleport badges only worked if you were alive Um, and this this actually played a big role in um, one of the sessions um, which we'll talk about so how this event was set up all three groups were given the same um like opening story. Uh the the party was roused from their bed uh very early one morning taken to the marina that uh is was built about an hour away from the outpost and there was Captain Fortune uh with for lack of a better term Captain Fortune's uh has uh access to some um technology that you don't usually see in a D campaign uh very eberron-esque and that is uh, deliberate um and so she had several uh basically motorboats with her um and she used those motorboats loaded up all the adventurers on uh to the motorboats and then uh sent them off into the ocean basically to lure this clockwork nautilus out now the party has slowly learned, probably too slowly, and that also plays an impact into things, has learned a little bit about what the Clockwork Army is, who controls it, and most importantly, how can we get their hands on them? Because a lot of the players want revenge for their attack on the, 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 excuse me, the Clockwork Army's attack on the outpost several months ago. And that was back in uh, November, I think.
1: Didn't that come right after our last event
0: uh so that actually technically no um so the Aboleth, you're you're referring to the Aboleth battle the Aboleth- uh, no
1: I was thinking of the uh tower, the uh seal of air,
0: yeah oh yeah, okay, so yes, so the clockwork army attack uh did occur that the clockwork army attack uh kind of uh kicked off the um that that was the the not kicked off that was the basically the teaser of our last event yes um where the three groups learned that the outpost had been attacked uh as they came from their last uh big event which involved the seal of air um so uh yeah i'm trying to think um so yeah so um, yeah, it's been a few months since we've done one of these events. It, you know, the, the events are a lot of fun. They require a lot of planning and a lot of time to think of. So I don't like to run them too often. Um, but they're a lot of fun to do. And usually those are our big. Um, that, it's the moments that bring the entire adventuring group, this whole campaign together. It provides a strong shared experience that everyone can relate to. Um so in this case using the help of the pirates uh all three groups were able to uh board the Nautilus and each of them had their own separate goals. Um so uh we kind of talked a little bit about what happened during the first part of this mission in our last episode but mm-hmm. we're going to actually talk about the events of the ep- of that session because we just mainly talked about the drama. So Luke, why don't you talk about Buddy Brigade and what they did on the Clockwork Nautilus? Uh,
1: The Buddy Brigade did nothing wrong. Our mission was to raid the topmost deck uh, to get to the communication room and try and find out who has been financing this Clockwork Army. Uh, The good thing was we ultimately did find that out. The bad news is we ultimately had some uh, character issues that led to a character uh being permanently benched, partially because of these reasons. Uh essentially what happened is our party was sent in to raid after turning off the turrets on the second floor. Floparm, my character who previously was five years old and is now six years old, randomly opened a door trying to find treasure instead of making any sort of check to try and find where treasure might have been on the boat in a mid-period before getting to the crux of our mission, and instead released a robot army that almost killed the party. And we, we talked more about some of the uh, inter-party politics for this last week, so I won't go into that. Ultimately, though, we found uh, Yuria, who was an instigator of some of the inter-party turmoil, especially after she tripped Flop Arm, Uh, She
0: tripped, dropped Flop Arm to save his life, because Flop Arm ran into a room that had remote control turrets that, you know, would have hit him. mm -hmm. Let's be clear, that was Uria showing tough love. Now, yes, Uria probably should not have tripped a five-year-old, but the counter-argument probably is the buddy brigade should not have brought a five-year-old onto a, you know, boarding mission.
1: Flop Arm is very durable. <laughs> but like I said, we are not here to uh, re-litigate that. Uh, you can listen to more of the discussion on that in Dr. Worm and Cartram, our eighth episode. Yes. But we proceeded from there into the communications room, uh, had a very close to deadly battle, where Floparm did his darndest to keep people alive, and ultimately we beat our enemies in time were able to gather some notes but not all of them and left successes for the yes. most
0: part. Yes. Now and the, the 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 Buddy Brigade did learn several bits of interesting information which really informs probably what the Buddy Brigade will be dealing with for the next few months. Mm-hmm. Um first and foremost, uh the Buddy Brigade or yeah, the Buddy Brigade found out that the clockwork army is being, uh, was financed, was hired basically by, uh, a, a group of, uh, ro- group of nobles, uh, known as the blue family. Now, you know, it's kind of a bit of a joke because the main kingdom in this campaign is known as the red kingdom and the blue family are kind of minor royals with a, a tenuous claim to the throne. Um, not something that would really get um be relevant unless there was some sort of secession crisis which you know we're not going to have one of those anytime soon that's that's you know not foreshadowing at all so that was the first thing the other thing was that um the clockwork army has been working with the arms of paradise and this was kind of known for a bit and the arms of paradise are this um We'll talk a lot more about the Arms of Paradise later, but basically they're this Scientology-type group that is also a Doomsday cult. Um, And they have a presence in the Outlands. They are one of the main antagonists in the Outlands, and uh, the Clockwork Army has been working with them. And it turns out that the link there is probably the Blue Family. The other thing, and this was what really intrigued the Buddy Brigade and what really was kind of... um, heaping fuel, uh, kind of uh, tossing some fuel into the fire that was kind of this uh, inter-party drama, was that the Clockwork Army was tracking a number of people in the Outlands. Their primary goal seems to have been uh, to find Princess Ravella Red, who is this uh, missing princess of the Red Kingdom, and she is the next in line to the throne. And they seem to have, like, located her general whereabouts but nothing specific you know she's somewhere in the outlands this has been kind of a a plot point that's been in the background for a long time hasn't really been investigated too much Um, but the clockwork army seems to have been looking for her but the clockwork army was also tracking a number of people including yuria who is the rogue of the buddy brigade and seems to have her own motivations for being in the outlands beyond just I want to be an adventurer. Um, other people of note was Mara Islat, who uh, is the ex paramour of the Wareshark Ree, and also uh, likely a thrall of the Lich, the Lord of Skulls, who, the Lord of Skulls, also has his hooks into uh, Malgador, uh, a uh, long missing um, uh, warlock who is also a member of the Buddy Brigade. And there are a few other people that they were tracking as well. Um, and the reasons why the Clockwork Army was tracking all these people, including Yuria, is unknown. But fingers immediately started getting pointed. Uh, and, um, yeah, and, and we're still not sure how that's going to resolve. Fun times. <laughs> uh, so the, the next part, while the Buddy Brigade was having their moment up on the upper deck, the Toon Squad had a different mission. So a while back, I think in September or October, uh, the Toon Squad's uh, cleric, uh, Kaelin, came across and retrieved uh, one of the seven seals, which we talk about in the intro. Uh, This one was known as the Seal of Nature, and she uh, tasked herself with protecting it while its traditional protectors uh the Tuscali, a group of bee people um were uh, out of commission due to the abolith, uh duwa and so she has uh she she had uh kind of utilized a magical barrier to protect the seal and then that magical barrier was um shut off and uh, when the Clockwork Army attacked and basically used a lot of dispel magic uh, on on the outpost. And the seal seems to have been one of the primary goals of uh, the the outpost attack. Uh, it was uh, two goals. The first was to cripple the Outlands Exploratory Company, and the second was to retrieve the seal. And so Kalen and her group, the Toon Squad, their job was to get the seal back. We knew for a couple of weeks that this seal was very likely broken. In fact, the Faerim and their prophecy that we talked about in our last episode basically said as much. And unfortunately, the Toon Squad discovered that the seal was broken, meaning that two of the seven seals had now broken. During that entire fight, um, you know, they they raided this lab. They discovered a Modron or a Mo... How do you pronounce it, Luke? A Modron. A Modron, okay. I I read all these things on the internet, but I never like actually hear them pronounced, so I always get confused. I um, mean,
1: I, I can just pop on to D&D Beyond. Not our sponsor for this week, but it could be. And, oh, they don't actually have just a single madron. Yeah. Uh, wait, maybe? But, nope, nope.
0: Yeah, it was a Monodrone, so um, we can say that much. I know how to say that. So in this lab, they found a monodrone who was being horrifically tortured. And so the group decided to go and save the monodrone, retrieve these seal pieces, and generally make a mess of things. Now, it was a pretty tough fight, probably the toughest fight of the event. Um, uh, These robots were armed with uh, pincers, a stunning mechanism, and also... um, uh, lasers that fired off one of four different types of damage, each of which required a different kind of saving throw, which I, I rolled at random. I rolled a d4, and whatever came up, that's what got shot out. In uh, the prior uh, week, Kaelin had retrieved a sword, um, seemingly given to her by the Raven Queen, her patron, her her deity. That sword, I don't want to call it cursed, but it has some very negative consequences. She learned that the sword um, grew in power as more of her allies were close to death. And during once it reaches a certain point, the sword basically enters a secondary phase where she becomes stronger, she deals more damage, but it also has some very powerful drawbacks that could result in her death. And the sword went off on the second to last turn of this fight. The big thing is, uh, is that the sword does not allow a person to be teleported away. It basically blocks teleportation, turns her into an unwilling creature. So she can't be um, like thunderstepped or teleported or dimension doored or any of that stuff, which meant that the um, timer suddenly became a very big factor. We were down to about 90 seconds left in the timer, and we were going to finish up the uh, the round of combat. But it basically, this entire fight, and Kalen's fate specifically, came down to what our uh, guest Zark, uh, or our, uh, our fighter Zark, who was a guest in a previous episode, he's played by Jeff. Um, it all came down to what he would do, because they didn't know how the sword turned off. He gambled and tr- decided that I'm going to go and try to heal the uh, our, our paladin who has just been tanking the entire fight, was down to maybe like, maybe he was down to like three HP and I'm going to give him a healing potion and see if that snaps Kaelin out of it. He did that and it was the robot's turn and that seemed to snap Kaelin out of her um, feral state for lack of a better term, but it left the party's sorcerer Wide open for an attack. If I would have rolled, I rolled. I had three attacks on the sorcerer, only one hit. If I would have hit on one more of those attacks, or if he would have failed a saving throw that was caused by the laser shot, Kalen probably would not have survived. Like, not probably would not have. She would not have survived. There would have literally been no way for Kalen to get off the boat. So literally came down to uh, two dice rolls and one decision by Zark as close to the wire as you could get. It was like 11 o'clock when that event was over and we were all like everyone was on the edge of our seats. Like the session was one of the best sessions I've played in in a very long time. It It was a great night in terms of combat and like suspense and intrigue and all of that. Uh, But yeah, so the Toon Squad came off, you know, they felt like, came off like they were invincible. The final part of this event was um, uh, the terror team, who they were the ones who had really been doing a lot of the work in the trenches to find out more about the Clockwork Army. They were the group that made first contact with the Clockwork Army. They were the ones who had been following a lot of the clues, trying to piece together more information about the Clockwork Army, and so they were assigned, with killing the Clockwork Army's controller, a Duraguard named Mergle Rackhook. The first thing they did was they tried to sabotage the power source of the entire Clockwork Army, which was located in uh, this large brass scorpion that had seemingly been, like, jerry-rigged to serve as a power source. Clearly, this Brass Scorpion was not a part of the Nautilus, was not constructed by Murgle. It seemed to have come from the Lord of Skulls. And this was further strengthened when Hjalmir, uh, yeah, his sword, uh, the sword Wormheart, seemed to draw power from the energy source that powered this Brass Scorpion. And that may play some role in... Uh, play you know may have some consequences later on uh but there definitely seems to be a tie between the sword and the lord of skulls after that all happened they went and found mergle Rankhook in the kind of like the the hangar of the nautilus and fought him inside as he operated a robot beholder it was a pretty epic fight uh the sabotage that they had um uh, successfully completed a little while ago um, played a big factor in that because the robots they faced, the kind of like the minions and the beholder itself just did not hit as hard as it could have. Um, so they, they were able to defeat the beholder. They dis then they decapitated Murgle Rackhook. It was horse Yawmir who delivered the final blow and uh, they successfully departed. And so, um, all three groups successfully completed their mission it was a total victory for the outlands exploratory company and the clockwork army has been entirely removed from the outlands it was it was a great moment for the entire campaign
1: and we didn't come back with any uh bad news like oh everybody you uh, you expected to see is dead
0: yeah no it was it was a good it was a good mission it was a kind of a kind of set up the you know it was kind of the end of um the winter season you know that it, it kicked off and you know the clockwork Ar- army storyline kicked off in uh like late November early December um with the attack on the outpost and it stretched into the uh first weekend of or last weekend of February first weekend of March and um yeah it was a good 3 months a, lot, a little bit of twists and turns i mean this this camp this podcast has you know covered everything that happened basically since the outpost was attacked all the way up to them finally getting the revenge uh for those who attacked the outpost so it, it's it's been a journey but it was successful now that uh with the clockwork army out of the way that led us to our 100th D session uh in the outlands in this campaign and uh and classic buddy brigades fashion it was spent uh not leaving the outpost at all
1: <laughs> it was our bottle episode well we did leave the outpost technically Just yeah
0: not on a mission
1: no yeah you you sort of got to a point where you messaged
0: me it was like i don't think we're actually going to leave for a mission this time I had a feeling it was going to go this way. Why don't you tell us what happened on this very momentous uh, 100th, 100th session where nobody, you know, actually did anything.
1: Uh, so uh, one of the continuity things that we didn't bring up is we have been trying to investigate Mara Istlat, who is a friend, question mark, of Re, a Shark who is allies with our friend, uh, the Red Dragon, Ashmaker. And we were worried when she asked for a scale from Ashmaker through multiple channels, and as a result, we have sent Ashmaker out of the camp for an indefinite time until we figure out what is up with her, because as we learned through our team leader, uh for the entire company artist ellendell she has no heart one of the problems was we had a team member who also previously had no heart that would be the aforementioned malkador who was sucked into the void pools and so this information was presented and we also determined that there seems to be something that she is looking for which may more than likely be a magic sword that Hjalmir, a member of the terror team, has
0: that is Wormheart? Uh, yeah, so she is looking for, Mara is looking for a artifact known, uh, we don't know this for certain, but she definitely seems to, um, I guess, you know, we're jumping a little bit ahead, so some assumptions are being made. Um, mm-hmm. So the Lord of Skulls is this you know, powerful lich that basically um, people debate as to whether or not the Lord of Skulls is real or if he's just some myth. Um, it is believed that he once ruled a small country in what is now the Red Kingdom and basically his citadel, uh, which is a place known as the Brass Citadel, just vanished one day. One of the things that the... Lord of Skulls had supposedly done was create a powerful magical artifact known as uh, the Dragon's Heart. And it was created using the heart gems of uh, five uh, ancient chromatic dragons. Um, you know, we, we, are, we are kind of stealing a little bit of lore from some other fantasy series, but yes, dragons have heart gems, and he somehow combined these five gems into one powerful magical artifact, thus channeling uh the, the, the draconic magic of some of the most powerful arcane creatures in existence. At some point that artifact seemed to vanish. Uh the howls and winds are unknown, but coincidentally enough, this sword known as Wormheart, uh was in the possession of Claudius Dragonsbane, the former chief adventurer of the Outlands Exploratory Company who was killed during the clockwork army attack. Yalmir had came into possession with uh, with the sword. He discovered that the sword could talk to him, and he's been trying to like figure out what the deal is with the sword for, for quite some time, actually.
1: Also, he generally refuses to tell other members of the party about it because he does not trust the buddy brigade because we are friends with too many people.
0: Well, you guys have the direct link to, you know, the the Dragon's Heart has been mentioned specifically by Mara Islat and the campaign. Yalmir, you know, seems to have pieced together that Wormheart and Dragon's Heart may or may not be the same thing, but they certainly have ties together, especially as the Brass Scorpion, which, you know, also came from the Lord of Skulls, and Wormheart seemed to react to it. So there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot of um um it's the not too hard yeah it's not too hard to connect the dots of what's probably going on here. Um since you know it hasn't been confirmed in the uh you know in in the campaign yet and um you know I'm not going to speculate or lead people down one path but you know people are connecting dots Let's just go that, with that way. And Mara seems to be after looking for the dragon's heart. And she also, you know, judging from the fact that she has this dragon scale of Ashmaker, she seems to... There there definitely seems to be something going on with dragons.
1: There's always something going on with the dragons, but that's not the important thing. Because all of this was going around Flop Arm 6 of the Birthday.
0: Yeah. Which was
1: a six-year-old's birthday party, and Artis was snitched to about Flop Arm opening the wrong door by Uria and finally decided that uh, Artis would need to go and uh, basically ban Flop Arm from doing any more missions in the most responsible way possible as to prevent more problems coming out from it
0: yeah I, I think so. as as the parent of a six year old or, or soon to be six year old, he's still five. Um, you know, I thought about what would be the best way of gently telling a five year old that no, you cannot put yourself in you know into danger weekend, in, week out. I don't care if you can talk to mushrooms. I don't care about the fact that the buddy brigade seems to keep you around because you're the most healing they've ever had um this is this is very irresponsible by all uh accounts so this is coming to an end um and so i was like oh we'll give him a pony and give him a fake job <laughs>
1: well and i'd also warned you that like flop Arm is very much a character who i just channel in a way and it was a I don't want this to go bad for the party because it could very easily go bad for the party. And so, yeah, artist came and was like, hey, you've got a new responsibility. You're going to take over tending the garden. Here's a pony. I heard you wanted a pony for your birthday. And also we need to find someone to put an ankle bracelet on this kid. Uh, flopper then revealed the surprise that he wanted a pony to eat, which nobody expected.
0: That was that was pretty great. I'm not gonna lie, that was one of the funniest moments that I've I've been sat at the table for, probably ever. Um, yeah. So artists, artists, who you know I was controlling as he's an NPC, uh, turned to Doctor Worm, the character played by James, who was on our last episode, and um, told. Dr. Worm to put a few magic missiles in this pony that was waiting outside.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which which he was saved yeah. from having to do uh, well, because all of a sudden there was a uh, guard who warned that a portal opened up near the, uh, the hedge the Wick- maze.
0: Yeah, the, the wicker, wicker maze. maze
1: yes. And who came out of that except for Mama, Cleaver, and Malkador. Uh, Cleaver and Malcador initially did a bit where they were like, we've been in there for 60 years. But uh, Hjalmir, being the very suspicious person that he was, immediately started questioning everybody. That got dropped, and he wanted to know what Malkador knew about the Lord of Skulls. We can probably do a deeper dive on Malkador now that Malkador is Malkador and we can reveal the dark secret past.
0: Yeah, and so you know, Malkador's player, uh, Mike, is a big Warhammer 40k fan. Um, in fact, the Malkador, uh that, that name comes from uh, Warhammer lore, as does the Lord of Skulls. And so, um, he, he came up with this idea, you know, when he first, you know, came into the campaign a while ago. He His idea was, you know, I was an adventurer. Um, basically, a lich got me and gave me two choices. I could either be his servant or I could die. And so he took out my heart and now I serve this lich. Um, and, you know, we went with the Lord of Skulls, which is a, you know, a uh, name from Warhammer 40k. Obviously, a lot of stuff has been changed as, you know, we're not in the uh, grimdark future. Um, but you know, the lore skulls has quickly become a major part of the campaign, and you know, the lore skulls has always kind of been there. The lore skulls has a lot of connective ties to a lot of the other characters that we've seen pop up in the campaign. Uh, not only is um, you know, re this were shark ally, of the buddy brigade, connected to the lore skulls through his ex, his paramour, they it's complicated. Eventually, someone will just ask, and you know we'll start to get some answers on that that relationship. Um,
1: we will directly ask because yeah. so far we've been dancing around everything.
0: Yes, you guys have. That is a, a an excellent way of putting that. You've been dancing around things, um, but yeah, uh,
1: we want to keep Malkador being back a secret, while not preventing him from being in the camp because we don't know what the Lord of Skulls will do. We don't know what Mara might do if she finds out. So Malkador is going to live in disguise to hide everything. And Cleaver is just back and her hair is slightly different now.
0: Yeah. Um, and you guys, you you and uh, Mike came up with like a, a list of what you know Malkador and Cleaver had been up to in the Outlands or in mm-hmm. the Shadowfell for the last 24 months. Uh, since you guys got sucked into this void pool
1: for the equivalent of 2 years
0: yeah yeah because mm-hmm. time moves differently and um you know um i i did have to go and uh, you know uh, the only the only thing that i explained was the overall idea of like what's going on in the shadow fell is basically there's this push and pull between the shadow fell and the um you know, the Domains of Dread, uh, better known as the D&D campaign setting known as Ravenloft. Um, and so there's kind of been, um, you know, that has been like the overarching thing that Malkador and Cleaver have been up to aided by the Shatterkai of the Shadowfell who um, are uh, ruled over by the Raven Queen. Um, hmm. But you guys came up with some, you know, interesting shenanigans. Yeah, uh, and
1: if If we get to Cleaver talk, we can talk about some of
0: that no okay, yeah. um so um yeah, so the big thing is cleaver and Malcador are back flop arm is out uh illyria who's mike's who is Mike's backup character um has also retired from active adventuring, so we have returned to a more traditional buddy brigade lineup,
1: mm hmm and who knows what will happen when Artist Ellendale goes to meet Flop Arms, Mushroom God?
0: Well, you know, I I can I can say this. Artist has seen some shit. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, we talked about it a few few sessions ago. His head was blown off of him, and mm-hmm. he somehow survived. So, you know, Artist is not one to be easily faced. I think this will explain to this will. And in, help inform artists of what is going on with the creepy kid. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't think he's going to be like phased or freaked out about it. He's probably going to be like, well, that's another extra dimensional entity that we can just put on our extra dimensional entity list. Yeah. Good, good, good. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I think that's how artists is going to probably take that now. The the big question is, and, you know, we, we can talk a little bit more about this. You know, when you said that you wanted to take over Flop Arm as a character, you actually kind of, um, I don't want to say spoiled my plans for the character, um, but you, you certainly kind of um, threw a wrench into things. I
1: like to throw wrenches.
0: You know, because Flop Arm, his name comes from the fact that a bunch of his bones were taken by the Bone Taker, which means that he has a link to the Bone Taker, which means at any point in time, Flop Arm could suddenly become, you know, get taken over by the Bone Taker.
1: Mm-hmm. But the Buddy Brigade hasn't really dealt with that firsthand, so I think they've been just ignoring that.
0: Yeah, I, and, you know, I didn't want to, you know, due to the fact that you have suffered more character losses than any other player in the campaign, I didn't want the big flop arm story arc we knew flop arm was going to be a short-term character and so i was like you know we'll just put on hold the bone taker stuff that's going on with this little goblin kid you know i we we don't need to you know kind of go is luke going to have to come up with a fourth character you i mean no i have no problem doing that you still might have to come up with a fourth character um <laughs> you know, yeah yeah but i mean what... But uh,
1: Monk Ellie still is also missing a bone, so, I mean...
0: She is, but it's we don't know that it was given to the Bone Taker or not. In fact, the terror team asked about her, her knuckle bone, and mm-hmm. the Bone Taker specifically said that that bone was never given to him. Now, the Bone Taker could be lying. I mean, it's kind of hard to trust a, um, you know, a... Bone man? He's not even a man. He's a bone gorilla. You know, so it, it it's kind of hard to trust a an entity that is you know basically can remotely control bones. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you listen to him, you know Ellie's Ellie's so, so far in the clear because you know the the bone would only be given to the bone taker if um you know Ferris um messed up his flower. Yeah, during that entire during the last trip time you guys went to the Feywild, but that's a that's a tale for another week.
1: And it's a good thing Ferris hasn't died yet, like he came close to at uh, the last Toon Squad mission, because he needs to take care of that flower. He should talk to Flop Arm about that flower.
0: Yeah, well, he he uses the flower as a component for like one of his signature spells, so that's that's the big reason why. But yeah, no, if, uh. Ferris had his own uh, close brush with death this week uh, in our last session, the last session that happened in the campaign um so we mentioned in our previously on uh that brahm, the adventurer brahm who's played by uh a you know player named jamie um his main reason for being in the outlands is he's looking for his apprentice now brahm and his apprentice oniken are both members of this um Organization known as the Order of the Unseen Eye. They're a kind of obscure organization. They collect magical artifacts. They seem to um, observe the planes, um, but they're very much a hands off organization. They don't take an active role in things. And so it was a bit surprising that Onakin, you know, suddenly went rogue, stole an item, and ran off to the Outlands. And so Brom's been kind of looking for him ever since. So they they had heard that Onikin was in the steppe canyons and they decided to investigate. Um, they, they went up to this place uh, near the mechanical gorge, which is where um, the buddy brigade uh, had visited not, not too terribly long ago. Um, and they discovered a recently abandoned campsite. Looking about, they found something interesting buried in the fire pit. It was a, bloody or not bloody a muddy sack of rabbit bones you know at first it was like okay maybe this is just you know like trash burial but it seemed weird that it was buried in the fire pit itself eventually after way too long like they were like we want to investigate the fire pit more i'm like why don't you take a look at the bones they're like we're going to dig up the fire pit even more And it's like how about the bones Took them a while to figure out. Maybe we should investigate the bones, and it turned out that the bones had letters scratched into them. Which, once you like like rubbed away the dirt, you know the dirt was left in those scratch marks, and it it formed uh, two messages. Mm-hmm. The first one was uh, the message "Arms is order," a reference to the arms of paradise. And Brahms' Order of the Unseen Eye. The second was a question: Who is Core? Core? No, no, Core with an E. (laughs) Uh, As a side note, uh, when I when I did this, because I've been you know running off of very little sleep recently, it's one of the lovely things about having a baby during the pandemic. Um, We have two. We have two entities who are spelled very similar. There is Kord, K-O-R-D, who is a uh, god originally from Greyhawk that is worshipped by um, one of our um, player characters, uh, has very major ties to the mythology and the um, pantheon of gods that seems to have once walked in the Outlands. Then we have Core with an E, K-O-R-E, who is the player character formerly controlled by Luke. When I made this puzzle, and it was basically, um, you know, the the bones, uh, you know, had letters, and they had to rearrange it to try to figure it out. I put cord with a D instead of "core" with an E. I realized this at 2 o'clock in the morning after I'd given them the puzzles, and I think they had solved it. And so I spent, like, the rest of that night from, like, 2 o'clock until, like, it was time for me to go to work, like, should I just admit that I screwed up, or should I go and like maybe Cord's a fake god? <laughs> like, I don't know. So I like went back and forth on this for hours, hours. Uh, I eventually just fessed off. I was like, guys, I made a typo. My bad. But yeah, so uh, Onikin seems to be researching what is going on with Core, uh, who we'll talk about later. Uh, in this episode as they finally started to like figure out that a message was left. The group was the Toon squad was attacked by assassins who could turn invisible Uh, during the fight. uh, Ferris Eddie's character, who is a now level six wizard uh, got critted uh, with sneak attack and poison damage Um, that turned out to be 24 D six of damage. It was, it was a mess. Um, Ferris luckily survived, um, but yeah, he was hurt pretty badly and they were kind of helped out by Onakin himself who didn't appear, uh, but he, you know, seemed to use his own, uh, innate psionic abilities to warn the Toon Squad to get onto some nearby boulders and then he tossed some sort of, uh, vibrating device onto the ground. And that summoned a giant burrowing worm known as Orgomets the burrowing horror, um, which has been alluded to several times in uh, previous adventures in the step canyons. And so the burrowing horror um, went and burrow. Gosh, I can never say burrowing. I don't know why I say these, you know, I name these things afterwards. I have trouble pronouncing Orgomets ate the assassins. And then he went on his merry way and Onikin warned Brahm to be careful who he trusted. And the big question is, is how are the arms of paradise connected to the Order of the High? Unsi- and what does Oniken know about Kor? What does Luke know about Kor? And that should be our real question. Because Luke, as your deep dive, piece of lore that you want to look into, we're going to talk about core.
1: Yeah, I, I figured I was probably going to be the best person to bring up Kor as I brought him into this world and my god, I'll take him out.
0: I think Hjalmir's is going to be the one who take who's going to take him out.
1: No, I I feel like Core has to kill Hyalmir first.
0: <laughs> it's it's, it's going to be going to be one or the other. I feel that's that is the that is the uh, core conflict, the core <laughs> conflict that is leading into the Summer of Blood. Um, so, yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Core? What What is his deal? Why, why is he now under my control?
1: So, Core was reusing a character pitch that I had in the last Pathfinder campaign that I was in that went very poorly, where ultimately I wanted to play a character who had a dark fate and was not going to be able to escape it. And ultimately them using their powers was them failing to resist this inevitability. And so the last time we tried to do it, the GM was like, Oh, okay, well, here's our first mission. Uh, we're going to go and solve the problem immediately. And it's like, that's not what I want to do here. I want to play a tragic, sad boy who I'm going to lose in some indefinite period of the future. And so Kor was a warlock who essentially, every time he tapped into his magic powers to use them, he was giving this dark part of his brain more power. So typically, he did not act like a warlock. He would go and like move boxes and... Uh, he tried to hit things very hard, and he was a very dumb, lovable soft boy. A also very pale soft boy. Like, I was thinking a burn Gorman type. Okay, But if he got jacked and got sunburnt, but did not have the complexion to pull it off. <laughs> and uh, so, like, one of the first missions that we had actually had Hjalmir... And the Arms of Paradise, where uh, Corp failed uh, one of the background roles that I was doing. Because the spirit inside of him saw, oh, hey, here are these people who should be worshipping me. If I can get this helmet, I get to control like this entire group of people. And he attacks this Arms of Paradise leader, who ends up coming back later. And... When he fails, he is stopped. The uh, force controlling him leaves him, and he is just stuck with... I have no idea what happened. Everybody is angry at me. And Chalmere, and also Paul, just went off straight for like 15 minutes.
0: Yeah, Paul Paul gave the first of uh, one of his now signature speeches. Paul... Paul is a uh, lawyer in his day job and he has a background in theater. Um, so, you know, when you need a monologue, you turn to Paul and Paul, you know, Paul, he, he was. um, I don't want to put words in Paul's mouth, but, you know, I think he was more, you know, just trying to keep to what what would Yalmir do? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Hjalmir was basically like, oh, my God, this this guy just tried to commit murder. And it was it was Dr. Worms. It was James's first mission too. Uh, <laughs> like it was kind of like like the this kind of like goofy side quest because it was like involved the arms of paradise there. There was a demon involved, a, a demon which ended up being connected to Captain Fortune, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Um so yeah so it was it was this weird mission and then when you tried to kill Bruce the Paladin Bruce Thadicon um yeah Paul Paul definitely went off on you um mm-hmm. and it and, go on
1: Oh yeah and and so it ended with Paul and Yomir mainly having the doubts but everyone else in the buddy brigade was like Okay, well, uh he's part of this group, and Christian put in rules where we can't fight each other, so it should be fine, and so core continued on for a while, uh lost power, uh lost control a few times, uh was forced to use his magic more often, and eventually started formatting a plan that was not really shared with the rest of the party. Uh, where once we met Re, Kor or the force inside of Core became very interested in Re, the were-shark, because he wanted to find the priest that would be able to remove the curse from Re and put it on him instead, and essentially do a Hulk-type split where the force inside of him controlled the were-shark form. He would drive everybody away and would go big bad that way. And I presented this pitch to you i think the week before the next major event happened
0: yeah uh, you had kind of talked about the general plans i Mm -hmm. didn't know about the hulk split um but you had basically talked about your idea that you felt that core was probably eventually going to wind up as a bad guy and Mm -hmm. i was like yeah no i i kind of agree that now we hadn't talked about at the time when you Came to me with this idea for Core. My one request was, because because Core's background was he was fo- a former member of a cult, you know, made contact with some sort of entity, and then got away from the cult. It, and it
1: it was definitely a his family was members of this cult and had a big destiny for him that he wanted no part of.
0: Yeah, and so my one request in that was that. Uh, the cult organization was the arms of paradise Mm -hmm. Um, you know the arms of paradise were and i can i can say this because now we're pretty we're almost a year into this campaign so it shouldn't be too much of a surprise i always kind of intended that the arms of paradise was probably going to be the ultimate evil bad organization of of all the different factions that i had like initially populated the outlands with and that includes like the vampire cartrum and Ashmaker and all these things i kind of assumed it would end up being arms of paradise would be the ones that you know the the company would have the central conflict with um the arms of paradise and you didn't know it at the time and Mm -hmm. no one knew it at the time the arms of paradise their their big thing is they are are seeking paradise which is hidden behind black walls. That is kind of their driving force. They have a couple of other kooky things. Um, they have a, not a hive mind, you know, that's too strong of a word, but they can like share, can share each other's experiences, can lend each other their strength through the use of these like creepy masks that kind of look similar to shy guy masks. Or, um, uh, if you're a fan of comics, the court of owls, um, so, you know, they, they kind of do these creepy things, but to the, the common person, they're just like this organization that's all about community and, you know, they're seeking out paradise and, you know, that's a metaphor. No, no, they're seeking out, um, you know, uh, paradise behind black walls is literally, um, uh, the you know, paradise behind black walls is literally the pit of the Farim. this this prison where the Faerim are being held. And basically, the Arms of Paradise, and they're still to some extent of what people know, you know, what the Arms know, or are they just pawns? Do people know what's actually going on here? Um, you know, the Arms of Paradise are trying to get the Faerim out. That hmm. That's what's going on. And the entity that was controlling, or, you know, giving Core his powers and kind of was developing this was a Faerim himself, you know, or itself. So, yeah, so you kind of had pitched to me like, okay, this is what the favor you know, this is what this entity wants to do. I'm like, okay, yeah, I can probably work with this. Then the Wicker Maze happened.
1: Yeah, we've talked about the Wicker Maze a few times on the podcast before. Uh, the end result is that, Kor got a Mind Flayer Larva in his brain. And Kor had trust issues from the beginning, because basically he had a force that was threatening him if he ever tried to warn people about what was going on or what was going to happen, uh, what might happen to those other people. And so all of a sudden, a third force enters his brain, that of the Mind Flayer Larva, and the Faerim in his brain says basically, okay, the Mind Flayer is definitely going to kill everybody in the camp as soon as it fully transforms. Neither of us want you to tell the rest of the people what is going on, because then we get killed and that causes problems. So if you help me kill the Mind Flayer, then I will leave the camp and I will not murder everybody immediately. And so core without much of another choice came and basically spent the next few weeks during which ceramorphosis was being fought and uh just tried to make things as nice as possible the fact that he held two different banquets probably could have been a bigger uh surprise but he also had to burn those gold pieces before he was gone forever
0: and that, and that actually established one of the great traditions of the, you know, D&D campaign, is somebody puts up a lot of gold to to have a big feast, which gives everyone temporary hit points.
1: Mm-hmm. And so after that, uh, Kor just vanished uh, at a time when we were supposed to go to a another adventure. And so the entire party and Cleaver making her first appearance... Uh, went after, interrupted the ceremony that Kor was going under, and essentially the Mind Flayer was destroyed before complete ceramorphosis happened, and Kor's personality or soul, or whatever you want to call it, was completely destroyed.
0: Yeah, it was stuck in a magic jar. Mm-hmm. Um, and was replaced by a favorite
1: or the favor that was in there
0: yeah well you know the so in my mind how how this all worked was you know during whatever you know ritual core went through he basically formed a connection with the fae um you know the the fae have tried uh uh, a lot of they've they've done a lot of things to try to get out of their prison uh there is um you know, uh, people assume, and I won't say if they're correct or not, that the voice, which we talk about in our intro, um, you know, that, that was a favor in plot. They have the arms of paradise. Knob uh, Nozzle, the first villain of our campaign, this goblin king, uh, he was a, um, you know, he was basically being controlled by a magic sword, which kind of, you know, exhibited similar control, uh, was likely also a Faerim thing, similar to what Kor was going through, actually. So it was kind of funny that, you know, my idea always was, okay, Dob Nozzle's gonna be the first like big like link to the Feyrim because he's got this like cursed knife that basically took over his personality, and it's actually a Faerim inside there. And then you're like, I want a Faerim inside of my character's head, too. I was like, okay, well, this seems to be the new thing. And that friends is how now the Feyrim are like super into mind control That that's really what set up this entire <laughs> weird recurring theme of mind control in this D&D campaign um, but um, yeah so like there was a link there but you know the Feyrim's like physical body is still tracked inside the pit but he could like whisper in Kor's ear Um. yeah so this entire thing the, the interesting thing from my perspective with you know core and now you know what he is now because you know now he is has mind flare powers because the ceramorphosis was mostly complete he also has faerum powers mm-hmm. he's he's a faerum mind flare you know basically the two big bads of the campaign and core literally embodies them both but the interesting thing is, so, you know, I had a couple, when I went and planned out this entire campaign, there were a couple things that would happen when certain things got triggered. Um, one of those, you know, it's like, for instance, um, when the party, you know, eventually I wanted the crab folk stuff to lead to the Ableth and the Ableth getting loose. The, another thing that I wanted was when finally the party actually. Had a like Feyrim, like fully in control. Like had to like when uh, a lot of the stuff that was going to happen in the campaign originally was, um, the party would have the parties would have to deal with Feyrim trying to get out, or you know like these like weird Feyrim excursions because there's Feyrim buried throughout the Outlands too, and so one eventually I kind of assumed that one of the Feyrim would get out and that would trigger the heralds of the Feyrim appearing. Those plans all got scrapped when Kor became, you know, a Faerim, basically. I mean, because he is. He is a Faerim. He's he mm-hmm. is a, you know, a bad guy. Um, and, you know, we now have a Faerim loose in the Outlands. And that's what triggered the appearance of the Heralds of the Faerim. And really started to put the first pieces of our endgame uh, together a lot sooner than I had expected. So, yeah. So... How how did you feel about how Kor's exit from the campaign uh, went?
1: I mean, he's still there. He's still causing trouble. (laughs) Still making Yamir angry. It's like he never left. Uh, No, I mean, mission accomplished. Hang up the banner and everything. Uh, That was what I had pictured for him. I wanted to play a sad boy for a while and... When that got done, it was like okay, now I can go and play another character.
0: This does seem to be like a little bit of a theme for you because you know I I know your like background with RPGs. You don't very often get the chance to be a player character in mm-hmm. these campaigns, so you you have a lot of backup ideas uh, ready to go. Oh yeah, I
1: I love having them, and more people should invite me to play.
0: Well, well, I was going to say, because it seems like you, 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 you have, I'm not saying that you're not connected to core or cleaver or flop arm, but it seems like you are very willing to um, tear the page out and start fresh with a new character. Basically at the drop of the hat, like, um, you know, when, when cleaver was pulled from the campaign, you didn't really blink there.
1: no. I mean, I I trust and respect you as a dungeon master, for one thing. Uh, I've been in other situations where I think I have had unfair deaths. Uh, the place where I started playing Dungeons & Dragons, which was here in Columbus, Ohio, at a small place called Darth's USA, for those of you who were familiar with that, Uh, The Dungeon Master there was, I think, like 60 or so, uh, went by ALF, and it was a wild game because it was in 3rd and 3.5 era, and one of the guys I knew who got me into gaming and who I knew through other people, uh, Andrew just had a big box of books and so it was just like, okay, I'm going to make a new character here and I'm going to spend like four hours picking out all the spells and everything and the characters died frequently.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Like there had been a while, a few years before I joined the game where there was like 20 kids coming out to play Dungeons and Dragons and eventually Alf... Apparently, just had a free-for-all murder tournament with all the kids against each other until there's only going to be like six people left, and then the then those kids were the ones who could keep coming and playing this game.
0: <laughs> that's that's awful. Also, now I have an idea of how to consolidate the Outlands campaign. Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, also, the owner of the store. Uh, because it was pretty much oh hey here's a bunch of people who are going to be coming into this store every week and not buying anything mm-hmm. or maybe buying something the owner of the store had the permission to any anytime he wanted drive in a 16 wheeler extra dimensional truck and just run over people and so you have the choice of oh okay I'm the twin brother of a character who just died or make a new character and i didn't want to go with the i am the twin brother who was never mentioned before so i just went back to the drawing board and that is very much what it is characters die death is something that happens and all it means is that you get to make someone new and you get to talk about the times that you had with them because their story is done
0: Yeah, well, and I, I, I'm not a big fan of, I, I, you know, the Outlands campaign. You know, a big part of that was in response to uh, some of my longtime players. They didn't complain. Complain is too strong of a word, but they wanted a tougher experience. Um, you know, a a more consequential decision. You know, experience, and so you know, the Outlands is very much a place where people you know, characters can die, and they have, you know, we've we've lost two characters, and we've had many other close encounters, but I really don't like the idea of, um, there's two things I really don't like. Uh, the first is, I don't like um, the players not having a role uh, in their character's death. If the players are going to die, or if, you know, their characters are going to die, I want to be because of something that the characters did, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I the thing that keeps me up at night is that you know is when I make an encounter and it's just a little bit too hard. Um, uh, the spider encounter with Illyrio is a good example of that. Now mm-hmm. that one, you know, that was partially because of some, you know, uh, some poor some. I, I didn't map the, the mapping for that was a little bit weird. Um, and that's on me as a DM. Um, and, but you know, so that was 50% me, but also there were some like odd player choices made there probably informed by the map. And so, you know, that one was kind of like on the line. And so, you know, I, I decided like, you know, I'm going to side with caution here and we'll, we'll figure something out. Um, You know, but, you know, I, I just really have a problem with, you know, the DM imposes something and that is what causes the characters to die. Now, if the characters go in fully informed or if the characters choose not to be informed about what they're going into, that's on them. Like, you know, if there are encounters in the Outlands that you're not supposed to walk into it. The Wicker Maze was an excellent, an excellent, 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 excellent example of something that, you know, the Buddy Brigade's like, you know what? We're going to do the Wicker Maze because we're the Buddy Brigade. And Core died because of that. But, um, you know, I, I don't like when the, the agency is taken away from the players. You know, the the choices have to be the player- the you know it has to be the players making the choices that lead to their characters getting killed. Um, and that's that's what happened with Core. Uh,
1: I I would also say, uh Core was a very unoptimized character. Yes, and pretty much all he could effectively do is eldritch blast or physically hit things and it makes for a boring character.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we've had a few people, you know, who have switched out characters because the guy got, got bored with them. And that's okay too. That's what the Outlands is all about. Mhm. Um so how do you think Core's Story will really end?
1: Oh, he's going to get murked at some point. Uh but I hope that before he does uh Shalmir meets his fate as Kor
0: kills him. You know, Kor already ate Bruce Thadagon, the paladin that you tried to kill that we talked mm-hmm. about a little while earlier. He he ate Bruce.
1: Bruce.
0: Uh, uh so, but also
1: Bruce tried to betray Kor to the Outlands.
0: Yeah, that's true. He 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 basically bailed out as a good example of boy, I really hope I don't make encounters too hard. I realize just how powerful a Faerim with mind flare abilities is. And whoo oh, was I... Uh, I was regretting that. Fair. Um okay, well. Um, so So, well, you know, I'm good it, to talk
1: about Cleaver if you want to go on.
0: Um You know yeah, sure. Let's talk about Cleaver. Let's talk about Cleaver. It's like I was like thinking it's like, you know, I don't I guess, yeah, tell me tell me a bit about Cleaver.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh so Cleaver is my current character. Uh she is a stout halfling and she basically came because she was sentenced to work in the outlands until her sentence is served.
0: And And what did she do to get basically put on parole um, at the Outlands, or put on probation at the Outlands, I guess?
1: uh, So Cleaver left home, met up with Mama, and was living off the land in more or less uh, just feralness. And during her time, she wandered into the Feywild, or tangential elf lands tied to the Feywild, wild killed a deer that they thought was sacred and then basically was arrested and forced into what she calls elf school because they tried her and she's not entirely sure what happened at the time it's a either a Well, they can't kill her because she actually did eat and use all of the holy deer that she ate, or she was not mentally competent enough to fully stand trial because she did not understand the laws that she broke. And so basically she got forced into prison school for the next few years, which was complicated for her uh, because she had tried to avoid all civilization... Uh really had a hard time caring about people, especially if they told her what to do. And uh, eventually she more or less graduated and was immediately shipped off to the Outlands because during this time she was causing a lot more
0: trouble. And, you know, you went from a character that was pretty firmly tied to, like, like the background of the Outlands to somebody with a pretty like neutral background that, you know, Cleaver could be a part of literally any D&D campaign.
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, I think part of it was because core had such an inherent tie. That was one thing that I wanted. Uh, and then also I kind of wanted to build out a bit more of the, world in a way with
0: cleaver as a character um and you know you you have you know used cleaver to kind of like build out a bit of the world you you came up with a bunch of halfling holidays um and (laughs) ironically the 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 halfling holidays turned into you know a, a major character moment for for cleaver um, and, you know, then you also, you know, kind of came up with this big, like, here's what Cleaver has done while in exile in the Shadowfell. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what do you think are some of like Cleaver's big moments in the Outlands? Uh,
1: so she started off as I was just trying to figure out how to play a ranger for a while. She was the person who came into the core mission and was like, yeah, I have no idea who this guy is, uh, but let's get him killed. And, like, over time, uh, she basically started flipping on a lot of missions. Like, there is the Coral Drake mission where we were sent to hunt after a Coral Drake. And when we found out that, oh, it's being targeted, she basically decided, oh, no, we should save this thing. Let's not eat it. Uh, Because that was her other thing. She will cook and eat all sorts of monsters as sort of a nightmarish, delicious and dungeon, uh, mm-hmm. approach. Uh, but like her first big one was, uh, dealing with the mind flayers and the Fae, uh, in which maze was that again?
0: Uh, or no, no, no that, was, that was, that was during the mission that Ellie lost her, um, phone. but yeah, so she, So that, that entire mission was, um, a a winding path, well, it was, it was basically, um, it was the, the long road. Mm -hmm. Um, so Ferris wanted to go to the, uh, Feywild to retrieve a flower. Ellie also had some business in the Feywild and I can't remember what exactly it was, but so basically people had wanted to go to the Feywild. Now, at this point in time, the the this mission, during this mission, you know, like you said, this was after uh the party's first encounter with the Shadow Court. And Shadow Court, for those of you who haven't listened to a previous episode, um, are mind flayers who have conquered the Feywild, which is pretty terrifying stuff when you think about it. And they've turned the Feywild Wild into like a uh a manic house of horrors um basically like think of all of like you know victorian horror um and so the party knowingly went into the feywild um quickly encountered mind flayers almost got eaten ferris almost died mm-hmm. um which uh, kind of like a running gag at this point um we're only saved because of gritty um the gritted one excuse me you know who looks identical to the beloved mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers. But, you know, that entire experience, you know, had a big impact on Cleaver, you know, as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned, her time in elf school with the uh, Fae Elves was a highly traumatic period for her, where basically she was getting forced to learn a lot of things that she had no interest in that she pretty much had to have burnt into her memory. And so when she saw people who were tied to her captors, if not, it, it was a different group of fails, uh being tortured by this mind flayer, pieces started connecting in the wrong way and she tries to talk her way out of this situation by making the mind flayers who are very interested in, in courtly appearance and rules. Uh, she tries to make them think that, Oh, she knows what truly should be done in the court of the Fae. And without explaining what was going on. And I believe we've talked about this before. Uh, she tries unsuccessfully partially because of roles, mostly because of roles and mostly because Christian had no idea what was going on to uh talk and ends up failing at it they have to fight and then just sort of has a mental break for a few weeks uh leading to tarst one of the stout halfling holidays where because she promoted it too much a group of goblin children including stinky who then became flop arm got lost and she had to save uh the Goblin children, with the help of the Buddy Brigade and Ashmaker and Scout Ellie, which ended up being where Flop Arm was contacted by the fungal entity that he is now associated with, and uh, yeah, that kind of set her on the right path of realizing that her actions do have consequences, and that she is ultimately better living with all these other people. And she started taking herself a bit more seriously after that
0: point. And you took a... That's when, you know, it was pretty shortly after that that you had Cleaver actually take healing spells. You know, and -hmm. and one of the great ironies of ironies, you know, Cleaver is the primary healer for the Buddy Brigade.
1: Yeah, she multi-classed from Ranger into Alchemist, uh, partially because more spells, more access, and... Having her being able to shoot fire from her hands or ice is very much something that she is into.
0: Um, so you know, Cleaver seemed to be on this path of like you know growing a little bit more responsible. She had taken up more responsibilities at the camp. She actually, you know, it was really funny because like Cleaver, you know, when when Artist Ellendale kind of took over, you know, Cleaver slash Luke was like yeah we should just murder the sky and like take over the outlands and it's like well no you're you're not going to do that, and you know it eventually, when Cleaver and artist finally sat down and had a talk, they actually like formed a connection, which was you know pretty ironic, I guess mm-hmm.
1: well, yeah, I mean she had been she had essentially tried to make herself the third wheel in the alley windrow and ashmaker campaign of romance and it never went anywhere because cleaver is interested in monsters for many reasons and so uh like when that fully kind of dissolved and she went into okay well i need to go and take this uh whole work thing uh or well and then artists basically came to her and said hey you're good at what you do. I trust you to take over the kitchen officially. She was down for
0: it. And also, it turns out that Artis is her parole officer as well. Mm-hmm. Which, you know. <laughs> there's, there's a little bit more to that story that we'll we'll dive into eventually. And then, Cleaver fell into a void pool
1: yeah mama got sucked into a void pool cleaver tried to save her malkador went in after her and then the party also threw in a rabbit just to see what would happen
0: yeah decisions were made that Mm -hmm. that is like you know one of the big like as i was talking about when players make the choices i can't do anything about those and choices were certainly made during that so how do you think that the shadowfell has changed cleaver
1: uh so beyond definitely having a few months of reg- uh, regimented uh training and work with a shatterkai, which is much more formal than whatever happened to the outlands
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh she got to go and try and work through some stuff because the uh the Shadowfell is like a mirror in some areas of uh the material plane so like When Malkador and Cleaver were free, she went to the copy of her home village and burnt it down slash tried to because nobody was there and she was trying to work through feelings. And uh, she and Malkador just went in this weird picaresque adventure, entering a uh, cooking contest, going to Shadowfell Las Vegas, getting married on accident potentially getting divorced, but it's unclear if that actually took. Uh, Going into the Fae Elf uh, forest in the Shadowfell and trying to similarly burn it down, which ended up with them heading into Ravenloft, where they may have come into contact with Strahd, or at least just another vampire. Because, you know, it's weird. And ultimately, in the end... She and Malkador have spent more time together, four times the amount of time together in there than they ever spent out in the actual Outlands. And so they returned and like, she's more responsible now. She has more of an idea of what her actions are and her whole, I think we all sort of need other people to help each other is more firmed up and she's seen some of what went happen or, and she has seen some of what has happened since she left. And, uh, she is not really happy about what happened to some former people who, uh, she was in contact with. Like whom? Uh, like the vampire Cartram who, as she understands it has gone full heel turn and is an enemy and, she feels sorry for Cartrum.
0: Yeah, I'll just warn you, Luke, the player in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, poking the Cartrum uh, bear uh, more might lead to the arrival of your fourth character.
1: <laughs> hey, well, Cleaver is going to Cleaver, and if she dies via vampire, that's like on her list of <laughs> ten ways to die. So So You know, she'll roll with it.
0: You know, so it's it's funny because like um when Dr. Worm with James he he set sent me a letter that Dr. Worm wrote to Cartram basically trying to figure out whose side Cartrum was on when it came to this whole Golthias and Velez of the Void and Trixie and all that stuff um, which really just opened a can of worms and so like I, I had I took a long long look um, and like I, I thought about this like long and hard like what would Cartrum do because he's a vampire when vampires get mad they tend to kill things you know they, they, they don't they're, they're very impulsive beings, you know? um, And, and ultimately, you know, I was like, so how, how would I do this? Because, you know, I don't want, you know, Cartrum, who is a, a fully statted D&D vampire, just basically confronting a level five adventurer. That's not going to go well. And so I had to like, kind of like, think about all of this a lot. And so, you know, I'd like, you know, I'd made my peace with my decision. Cartram wrote a very angry letter back to Dr. Worm, basically telling him off and telling him, like, leave me alone. And then, you know, Cleaver's letter shows up a few weeks later. And I was was like, (laughs) oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this episode will probably go up on Sunday now. So the party may or may not have enough time to be angry at, (laughs) Cleaver for her letter, which comes from a very earnest Cleaver place, but is also, you decided to change after two years in the Shadowfell. I have lived thousands of lives.
0: Yeah, that's that's basically it. It's basically, you know, I, I'll be honest. There's a part of me, and I, I haven't made my final decision yet, but, like, you know, there's a part of me who thinks that, like, this letter would show up for cartrum and cartrum would just take it and throw it in the fire. Oh, um, yeah. That is a hundred percent valid. Like, I, I, I kind of think that's probably... Like, Cartrum is kind of done with the Outlands Exploratory Company shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I think that's kind of, like, what sums it up. They have... Um, they have... Inadvertently, and without malice, meddled in things that he did not want them to meddle with, and now they have to deal with a motivated Cartrum. Um. So yeah, I I think that you know his reaction is kind of like uh, the time for apologies is over. Throws it in the fire without reading it, um,
1: including the
0: cupcake, probably including the cupcake. Um.
1: Truly, he is beyond redeeming. Uh, Welcome to the Let's Kill Cartram podcast. Uh, We gotta kill him, unfortunately, now.
0: Well, I'm glad that everyone's on the same page, finally. And on that note, that is all the time that we have for tonight's episode of Tales from the Outlands. Thank you so very much for listening to us. Uh, Every episode, you can find all of our past episodes, basically wherever you listen to this one. Also, feel free to go and uh, check out our website, talesfromtheoutlands.com. If you want to go and talk to Luke more on the internet, where can they find you, Luke?
1: Uh, You can visit my website, lukehair.com, L-U-K-E-H-E-R-R, or I'm on Twitter. I'm still in protected mode as I try and hide my opinions on Spider-Man the Animated Series on Twitter uh from potential employers on at at coltreg that's k l t r e g.
0: And you can find my writings about Dungeons and Dragons at comicbook.com. Uh you can find more lore about the Outlands on our uh Outlands database, which uh you can find that link in the description for this episode. And you can find me on Twitter at c CBUS. Uh, thank you once again for listening and until next time keep adventuring
1: and if you want to see what sort of horrific campaigns i run rpg pals club